You're listening to Quintilian, the Latin Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sellers. My guest today is Miss Natalie Roy. Natalie teaches Latin, Roman technology, and classical mythology at Glasgow Middle School in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. A National Board Certified Teacher, Natalie received both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Louisiana State University. Over the course of her career, she has served in a variety of leadership positions, including state chair of the Louisiana Junior Classical League and president of the Louisiana Classical Association. In recognition of her innovative work in finding the parallels between classical antiquity and 21st century STEM education, Natalie has received grants from such corporations as Lowe's and ExxonMobil. And in 2021, the Louisiana Department of Education named her the Louisiana State Teacher of the Year. Natalie, welcome to Quintilian. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I understand you're going to Washington, D.C. to meet the president. Please tell us about that and congratulations on your award. Yes, it's very exciting. Being named Teacher of the Year for my state has been a wild and very um, fulfilling ride. And normally, the cohort of Teachers of the Year for from the different states um, in my you know year would be going to all kinds of different experiences, uh, Space Camp, um, Google in California. This year, because of COVID restrictions, we haven't really gotten to do much. Um, Washington Week is normally held in March, and thankfully, um, the First Lady has gotten us an invitation to the White House for um, a couple of weeks from now. So crossing all my fingers and hoping that everything goes as planned so that I'll get to meet the President and the First Lady. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, congratulations. It's a, that's really exciting. And of course, the first lady is herself a teacher. So I know education is near and dear to her heart. Absolutely. Okay, so let me begin by saying that, that I actually moved to Baton Rouge from a small town in South Carolina in the year 1990. You were in Baton Rouge at that same time as a student at LSU during your sophomore year. Is that correct? Yes, I started at LSU in 88. I'm dating myself here, but I didn't start studying Latin until probably 90, right around the time you would have moved there. Okay, and uh, we'll get to all that later in, in our discussion. But I think that for the last 30 years, you know, you and I have known a lot of the same people. We've had some similar professional experiences. And I think we've all we've kind of missed each other a number of times along the way until now. Yeah. So I'm glad that yeah. we're finally able to connect. Yes, well, I often um, cite your wonderful TED Talk when people ask about um, good ways to promote Latin and the classics. So I, I've known you through that avenue. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Okay, so before we turn the clock back 30 years, I'd like to, to <laughs> first ask you about your work in the field of Roman technology. Your background seems to be pretty traditional for that of a Latin teacher, language and literature. You don't really have a background in science or engineering, right? So Correct. how is it that you develop this interest in and this expertise in the field of Roman technology? Yeah, so for many years, I taught at a small private school here in Baton Rouge. And for the past few years of my last years there, there was a big push to do STEM integration into whatever classes you were teaching. We had a couple of STEM 
instigators who were whose job it was to assist teachers in doing this type of work. And um, they were also asking for electives for high school students. And of course, I just have always loved all kinds of things nerdy science related. And I decided to kind of put together a outline for a class called Roman Technology in which we would um, read Latin texts related to STEM topics and then attempt to reproduce some of the products or processes used by the ancient Romans to, um, to make these things. And the STEM instigator thought this was a great idea. And I put together a proposal and it got approved. And I taught the class that first year to five upper level Latin students who had um, either taken advanced placement already and who, or who were maybe interested in just doing that, um, doing another type of class related to Latin, but not specifically AP. So um, it, the class went great. Um, it was really interesting the first year doing it, the, the types of things we did. And then it was that year um, I found out that my school unfortunately wanted to end the, Latin, the middle school Latin program, which I had taught in for many, many years. And um, I made a the big decision to transition to a public school in my city that needed a Latin teacher. The job was a part-time position. And she asked if I you know, would possibly consider teaching some electives. So I put forth the idea of teaching the Roman technology class as a, an elective that not only Latin students could take, but any student who was interested in the ancient world. And my principal said, great, that sounds wonderful. And that's where it really took off. I had um, so many students signing up for this class. I ended up um, having two sections of the class that were full the next year. Um, there was there were enough kids that we could have offered four sections and it's become um, kind of difficult to serve all of the students who really want to take the class because we do use real tools such as mosaic hammers um, all kinds of equipment that really we need to to watch kids carefully to use so we've kind of had to um, you know keep things at a certain level uh, we can only have 20 kids per section. So it's it's just really uh, exploded in interest. Um, the class is really, uh, now that I have it to where we don't, you don't need to take, have Latin to take uh, the class, um, just see so much more diversity in the class. My classes are right now about 78% students of color, um, which I think is pretty unheard of in traditional Latin classrooms. And um, it, it's just been amazing, the stuff that we're able to do. Even last year when we were, you know, on and off doing hybrid education where I had half of my students at home, half my students in front of me, uh, we still were able to do some pretty amazing projects. Um, we built catapults. We have made concrete. We have created full-scale mosaics, um, analematic sundials. Uh, 
um, the list goes on and on and um, the kids just really seem to react well to it and are so fascinated um, by this type of interaction with the ancient world. Um, it's, it, it gives just a, a fuller view of the ancient world and the people who lived in the ancient world. Um, you know, when's the last time you read something about how, what the life of a fuller was like? or what the life was like for someone who knocked stone into tiny pieces all day long. Um, we don't get those stories from the ancient world in literature. Um, we do get them with experimental archeology span and actually doing the things that they did. I've now actually uh, expanded it, the idea into my mythology class. So I'm now teaching a mythology class that we have now renamed Mythmakers. So we use the, um, the concepts of the maker movement where kids make things out of just anything and everything to connect to a story from the ancient world. For example, um, in the story of Arachne and Athena, we make cardboard looms so that the kids can learn how to weave and see what, what that experience was like. So for your mythology class, how do you handle all of the mature contents? <laughs> I mean, I, I used to teach a classical mythology course at the collegiate level many years ago. And mm -hmm. even at the college level, I struggled because we had there's so much violence, so much sexual yeah. content, so much violence mm -hmm. against women in those stories. And even at the college level, I struggled because I wanted to be faithful to the classical sources, but in a way that would be appropriate and respectful to everybody. How do you handle that for middle schoolers? Yeah, um, we use the Dolaire text, which is um, a nicely painted version of the stories. But I tell my students very upfront that I don't want to lie to them and make them think that everything was wonderful and happy for especially, you know, women. Um, and I do, you know, I try not to use words like rape, um, but, you know, I will be very honest with them when we talk about Zeus, for example, in the stories of Callisto and the story of Io and say that, you know, the book says she, they were married, <laughs> but in reality, you need to understand that men had a lot of power in that time that um, and women did not, especially young girls. And so when they say married, they mean something very different. So yeah, I try not to, um, I try not to sugarcoat it because I don't think we should as teachers. Okay. In terms of the, the technology projects, have you thought of doing anything really big and permanent on your campus? A Roman road, for example, or a triumphal arch? <laughs> Uh, I think the Triumphal Arch would, would be an interesting concept that we would probably need to make lots more technology for in like a crane, <laughs> which would be interesting. You're giving me ideas, Ryan. Good, good. Actually, we have, though. Uh, we created an, a 20-foot analematic sundial um, using the analemma description from Vitruvius. It's in book 10. Uh, is it book 10? Yeah, I think it's book 10. And... Um, an analemma looks kind of like an infinity symbol. So if your listeners don't know what I'm talking about, um, it, it's got an, it's like an infinity symbol shape. And this infinity symbol shape is what he describes. And 
that description is actually the path of the sun in the sky from any given vantage point on earth. And when you recreate this for your particular geographical location, um, you can stand on this platform that we make and your shadow becomes the indicator on the dial. So we were able to produce one of these and we made it out of mosaics. So there was that piece as well. The kids learned to cut stone the ancient Roman way with hammers and hardies, which are um, metal wedges. And we put those together. They learned how to grout stone. They learned how to place it uh, in decorative style, just like the Romans did. And the sundial actually works. So it is a permanent feature of our campus and it's, um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, great. <clears throat> so I, some people are probably listening to this and they're thinking, okay, this sounds great. I would love to incorporate some Roman technology into my curriculum, but, and uh, here are a couple of, of buts that I'd like you to respond to. Sure. Um, what if someone were to say, this sounds terrific. I would love to do this, but I just don't have time in the Latin curriculum, I, I have an AP program, I'm trying to get my students ready for AP, and there's just not time to incorporate this sort of curriculum. How would you respond to that? Or how would you suggest they maybe make it work somehow? Yeah, I would pick maybe one project that they could do, uh, that they could incorporate maybe through the whole year, um, and try to do it that way. Or they could, like me, you know, um, do their own class. Almost so many schools right now have a STEM coordinator who is willing to help you with all kinds of projects like this. Um, and I, I do think we need to expand the definition of classics a little bit to get more kids involved. You know, um, so many kids are, are being gatekept, as we call, as we say, uh, from taking a world language. I know at my school, for example, it's all about test scores. And I know that a lot of public school teachers are in the same boat. Um, if your kids aren't testing at a certain level on their basic math and English language arts tests, then they are not going to be allowed to take elective classes or they're not going to be allowed to take a world language. So it, it, I've learned that, you know, you kind of have to navigate that and by offering classes that kids really want to take, you can, you know, get them into a, a field that they would never have had the opportunity to study. So it, it's great that if you have, I understand the Latin teachers just don't have the time, especially if you're on that AP curriculum uh, path, you, you just don't have time for projects like this. And that is what is so sad to me about, um, about that AP track. You know, I, I did that AP track for years and it was really, I mean, I, I taught Caesar for many years thinking, gosh, it would be so wonderful to stop right now and talk about catapults, you know, and um, all this amazing technology that he used bridges across rivers and like the snap of fingers. I mean, it was just amazing. And it was so sad that I couldn't stop and do that, which is why I developed the course so that I wouldn't have to worry about stopping and interrupting something. Um, so if you're interested, there are lots of small projects I can point you toward and lead you through. But also just, I, I really wish people would, 
would consider offering something outside their comfort zone. You know, as you said earlier, I'm not, I don't have a background in STEM. I don't have a background in science, but what you will learn if you, you know, dig into STEM a little bit is that the way it's taught in secondary schools, it's more about the process than it is about the individual subjects that make up the acronym. Um, Kids are learning how to uh, engineer things, create things, make things without um, worrying about making mistakes. You know, you learn from those mistakes. And I think that teachers, any teachers out there can learn to do this. You don't have to be an expert math teacher, science teacher, you know, whatnot. I just think it's a lot more as possible if you're just willing to have an open mind. So for the Latin teachers who who would like to be, incorporate this sort of uh, curriculum and maybe they don't feel prepared, um, have you thought about maybe offering a summer institute of some kind for teachers to receive training in this? I would love to do such a thing. Um, I have offered my services at um, the past few ACL institutes, and that has been wonderful. Um, had a big group at my catapult uh, lessons in June of this past year for ACL. And yes, absolutely. I'm, I would love to do something like that because I think that, you know, as Latin teachers, we worry about our, our careers, our futures. And I do think that retention is going to continue to be a problem for classics teachers this is my way of getting around that. You know, um, this year for the first time since I started at my new school four years ago, I had a huge um, Latin, beginning Latin class. So, you know, it, it's starting to turn over and kids are starting to see, well, you know, I'd like to study Latin as well as the Roman tech, as well as the myth makers. Um, so, you know, eventually there will be more kids taking Latin at my school. Um, But my goal is, like I said, to expand the the definition of classics. You know, um, I don't think classics is just about knowing Latin and Greek. Um, I do think there's, and and from a perspective of future careers, I mean, I always ask the question, do we want every student who is taking Latin right now to become a Latin teacher? Is that a reality? I don't think so. But I know that so many kids will go on to be, you know, engineers, doctors, um, archaeologists. These are things that, you know, directly correlate and intersect with classics in ways that we don't often think about as language instructors. Some Latin teachers, and I think some humanities teachers in general, have something of a, of an antagonistic view of STEM. Have you experienced this at all? Absolutely. Yes, I have. And l- let me give you an example. Uh, three years ago, we had a program, a high school Latin program in, in Knoxville, the other end of Tennessee from where I live, uh, targeted for elimination. And mm-hmm. the Knoxville newspaper published an article about this. They quoted a, a teacher in Knox County And he said that this was happening because Latin was, quote, overshadowed by a blind, slavish fixation on STEM. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, I've definitely heard it. And I I think it stems from the fact that, you know, there's only so many electives that kids can take. 
And if you're doing an elective that kids really want to do, um, they're going to, they're going to want to do that. You know, I mean, it, and, and that was another reason I really got interested in STEM is because there's so much hand opportunity for hands-on learning, especially with middle school kids. And, and to me, that that's just so interesting and exciting that kids love to do that stuff. And the fact that I was able to merge it with classics, it, it's just to me, it, it really works. And kids want to do it. So, you know, I, I understand the antagonism, but I also can understand the, from the kid's point of view, <laughs> you know, we, as language teachers in, in a certain way, we're kind of language nerds, right? We love our Latin grammar. We love our ablative absolutes and our soup puns and our all kinds of crazy grammar stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty. I love that stuff. But I think that we have to have a healthy understanding that not all kids like that stuff. And I think that if we can just expand our views a little bit, um, we can understand, I mean, who doesn't like to teach Roman baths? Uh, who doesn't like to, to talk about, you know, um, mosaics and, and weaving? I mean, it's just all very interesting. And you can understand why kids would be interested in that. So yes, I, I understand that criticism, but I also think that there's room for a lot of merging of those two materials. There's, um, and, and I think it can be done. I've done it successfully and I think that other people can too. Okay, one more question about the electives you teach now, then we'll, we'll turn back the clock. Uh, I think it's it's wonderful that your students have the opportunity to take these types of electives and you have the opportunity to teach them. Can you maybe describe how the schedule at your school works and how this is possible? Sure. Um, at our school, in our district, and this is district-wide, and by the way, um, I teach in the East Baton Rouge Parish School System. We are the second largest district in the state. Uh, we have We serve... 53,000 kids, something like that. And we are about 89% African-American. So just to give you an idea, um, our daily schedule works a little something like this. There are two days, A days and B days. So um, each day is made up of four class periods that are 90 minutes in length. And so, um, the kids who don't do well on their standardized tests have to take their English language arts class and their math class every day instead of every other day, like kids who score well. So the kids who do well on their standardized tested tests, like in our gifted and talented program, for instance, their electives, they can take up to three electives, including a world language. So I might, I mean, there was one year I had a kid in Latin and in classical mythology and in Roman tech, like he was in all three of them. This is not true though, for my traditional kids and kids in the traditional program, they can only take one elective. And it can't be a world language because they're focusing their language studies on 
English language and being proficient in that area. Okay. So, you know, I can't serve that population of kids with a world language. It has to be another elective. Okay. So let's turn back the clock now. You're from Voyles Parish, is that right? I am from a very small town, um, Mansurah, Louisiana. It was named after Mansurah, Egypt by some of Napoleon's ex-soldiers. Really? Okay. And did you take Latin there? No. <laughs> I went to a very small high school where both my parents were teachers. It was about a 30-minute drive from where we lived in Mansurah. The name of it was Bardlonville High School. And it was a community school that served a very um, simple um, town of very few people. I had 14 kids in my graduating class and I studied French there. My family is actually Cajun French. My, all of my grandparents spoke French. Uh, as I grew up, my grandmother was actually spanked for speaking French at school. They were, you know, doing a purge basically in our state of trying to rid people of their French, their natural French. So I grew up hearing French, uh, speaking French, um, and that was actually my path when I went to LSU. I took French there as well. And then for some odd reason, decided to take Latin in um, my junior year and just really fell in love with the culture of it. Um, I remember taking women in antiquity and a basic archaeology class uh, from the classical world uh, taught by Ken Kitchell and just really fell in love with the topics, just the culture of it. Who were some of the other teachers at LSU that were influential for you? Yeah, King Kitchell, I call, often call him my classics dad. Um, he was very influential in my life. Took um, medieval Latin with him, which was a, a load of fun. Um, and then ended up working for him as his student assistant for a couple of years and uh, got experience editing texts for him and whatnot. So that was, that was really influential. He was very helpful in so many things that I did from there in the, and in, in the future. Uh, also, Dr. Um, Dr. Edgeworth, um, he was, Dr. Robert Edgeworth, he's passed now, and um, he was a Virgil scholar. And I often think of him when I read Virgil. Uh, Virgil's my, at, by far my favorite Roman author. And um, he was, he taught me Virgil and I will never forget some of the classes with him. Yeah, I stayed in Baton Rouge and went to LSU as well. And I had Dr. Edgeworth my very first semester. Oh, wow. I mean, I had never taken Latin. I had never really studied <laughs> ancient history. And, uh, you know, very, very intelligent man. He spoke with such incredible clarity and precision. Mm -hmm. I found him in some ways really intimidating because I yeah. didn't really come from a background where I had met anybody like him at all. Yeah. At oh, the yeah. same time, he was very, very nurturing, very encouraging, very patient. Very true. And yeah. um, of course, I didn't find out until until years later. I mean, he knew everything. I mean, he had gone on Jeopardy. He'd oh, gone yeah. on Wheel of Fortune, I believe. I mean, years later, I saw him on a promo for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah, he did them all. He yeah. did them all. And I, I think he got 
maybe he got close to the $500,000 question and missed it on millionaire. Okay. Um, and, and by <laughs> then it was the, the, the more difficult syndicated Meredith Vieira version yeah. than the easier Regis Philbin primetime version. Right. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have bet against yeah. him on, on Philbin to, to win the, to win the million. Yeah. He was a big figure um, in my, my choice of classics as a career for sure. Um, he's helped me get my first job. And um, so, yeah, I have fond memories of him. And as for Dr. Kitchell, I took that medieval and Renaissance Latin class as well a few years after you. And I remember we had some type, I probably have a copy of it back here somewhere. We had some type of prototype for a textbook that he was still working on. And I'm sure that you, your name may very well be very, I I should have pulled that out earlier. I don't want to, I don't want to hunt for it right now, but. Yeah, we did that same project where we had to take a text and, and do the editing of it. And yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, I learned so much from that class and, and read some really interesting Latin. Some of the stuff I've, I've just never forgotten. It was either so gruesome or so crazy. Yeah. I remember the, uh, the devil and the schoolboy was one. You have yes. like all of these examples of, uh, you know, strange and miraculous things yes. happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one I remember was, um, a, a, a set of conjoined twins being born and grew up, grew up to uh, adulthood. And then one of them passed away right? and the other lived for six months afterward. And I just remember thinking this must have been so horrifying. You know, <laughs> um, I, it was just a crazy story that I, I never forgot. And you know that he lives in Tennessee now, right? Absolutely. We're in, in touch a lot. Um, I saw him most recently at the ACL in New York city. And he actually came to my presentation on um, Roman technology. So yeah, it was, it was great to see him. So you double majored in English, didn't you? I did. I, uh, my first de- decision, um, yeah, was in English and I really enjoyed reading things like Dante through that, um, read a ton of Shakespeare and, but also a ton of short stories. That was really what I was mostly interested in. Raymond Carver, for instance, was one of my favorites. Um, just love, um, oh, um, just so many good, I, I can't mention them all, but that uh, kind of dovetailed into classics as well. So um, did a lot of comparison papers on the two. So yeah. And then as um, for graduate school, I worked in the comparative literature department and did uh, Latin, ancient Greek as well. So, yeah. So I was also an English major. Uh, So who were some of the English teachers you remember there? I had Dr. Kennedy for a short story class. Loved him. Um, He specialized in Poe, I believe, right? I don't remember. He was an American. I know he he specialized in in American authors, but I'm not sure of the author. I did have him for a short story class. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, back when A&E did that biography series, they did a, a an episode on Poe and they came to interview him, I think. Oh, wow. OK, I did not know that. Um, there was also Dr. Kevin Cope, who was just a, you know, big character, a um, lot of fun. Um, he was 18th century and 17th and 18th century British writers, I think, is what I took him for and really enjoyed um, the classes I had with him. And there were many others. I mean, gosh, just, I look back on my time at LSU with great, um, great pleasure. Had wonderful, I, I was a Lisa Simpson nerd. 
I always love school. I, you know, I will go back to school right now. Um, really enjoy it. Who did you study Greek with there? Do you remember? Yes. Um, I had Dr. Stephen Sherling. I had him as well. Yes. Again, passed away. Um, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful person. Um, Lucre had him for Lucretius, really enjoyed studying Lucretius with him. And then I had Dr. Valerie Houghton, who is no longer there, but she taught me uh, Thucydides. And I remember almost wanting to study Greek more than Latin after reading Thucydides. Okay, so you finish up at LSU uh, 1994, you take a job at Episcopal, is that correct? Yes, yes, and worked there for 24 years. Okay, I do have a story about Episcopal. Okay. <laughs> uh, my senior year of high school, 92, 93, that was right as you were finishing your master's and before you began working at Episcopal, right? So uh, I went to Terra High School, which was an under-resourced oh, okay. school. Yes, okay. oh yes. Um, and we, um, we were involved in this quiz bowl tournament and we were doing really well, which was not expected of us. Uh, we didn't really win anything. Uh, all the other schools had, had advantages over us, but we're doing really well in this tournament and we have to play Episcopal. <laughs> and I, I think the winner would have gone on to the final four of this tournament Okay. And the final four would have been Baton Rouge High School, yeah. McKinley, probably Catholic, and then everybody expected uh -huh. it to be Episcopal. Yeah. And we jump out to a huge lead in this match. And the, the room, Natalie, is just completely silent. It would be like Nichols State coming into Tiger Stadium and jumping out to a 30 to nothing <laughs> lead against LSU. Nobody could believe it. Right. And then gradually they kind of regain their composure. They begin fighting back. They're making this furious comeback towards the end. And then the officials make a call against a sort of a ticky tack rules violation, which they had not called against other schools in previous matches. Our quiz bowl coach is really angry about this. Uh, we file a protest during the middle of the match. It gets denied. Episcopal ends up uh, scoring on the very last question, they win the match. Oh, wow. The, uh, you know, our coach is still really angry after the match. He's berating the officials. We go out in the lobby. He says, okay, great job, guys. Tough break. And then he looks at me. He says, I'm going to go back in there and ream those guys out again. That was fun. <laughs> so here's the part of the story that you may find to be interesting. The name of my quiz bowl coach, Warren Drake. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Who later yeah. would become the superintendent yeah. of the East yes. Bay School System. Yes. Um, <laughs> and of course, Mr. Drake was the um, our superintendent when I was named Teacher of the Year. And I remember he had just actually, he had just finished up. He had just retired, but he still called me to tell me congratulations and how happy he was for me. So that was really special. He's, the, he's a great man. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh, Okay, Sweet so, story. <laughs> so you worked at Episcopal for 20 years and you said that they decided to phase out the Latin program. Why is that? Yes, I really, um, I was very confused by the decision. Um, I was, when I uh, started at Episcopal, there was not a big middle school program and I kind of uh, built it back up and really had it uh, to be very popular. Um, it was, it was such a fun gig. I love teaching middle school. It's my favorite. And, um, 
so I was really surprised when it kind of came out of the blue that they were going to phase out the middle school program and just keep the high school program. I honestly think that it had more to do. I don't think it had anything to do with me as a person. I did not take it personally, but I do think that it had to do more with scheduling issues. It's very difficult to run a small private school and, you know, we're talking a thousand kids, pre-K to 12 and staff that school with all these different small section classes, you know, Uh, the world language classes were uh, especially problematic in that regard, I think, because, you know, you have Spanish one, Spanish two, Spanish two honors, Spanish three, Spanish three honors, you know, and then do the same for French, same for Latin. It's difficult to, make those kinds of um, things work. You know, people, I think, often don't realize private schools, you pay a lot of tuition, but you are paying that tuition for a reason. And it's, it's just difficult. I do not look back with any kind of sadness on my experience there. I was nurtured and cared for as a professional and loved, loved, loved my school and my um, colleagues and students. But I, you know, also had to look at maybe it was time for me to serve in another way. I will always be a teacher. I have been offered jobs as, you know, principals and uh, supervisors in my life. And I've always turned those down because I don't see myself working, um, enjoying working with adults as much as I do with children. And so when I made the decision to leave, uh, I knew that I was going to a place where the kids had had not had a Latin teacher for a couple of years. They were learning Latin on um, some online platform. And I just thought, this is a great opportunity to give these kids the same experience that I was giving to another population of kids. So you worked with Michael Posey there at Episcopal, right? I did, yes, for uh, five years. Yeah, he and I worked together years ago one summer on the the V Roma project, the virtual oh, Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yes, he is. Uh, he, we actually we're very tight. We're very good friends. Um, we always co- call each other our our work wife and our work husband. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so after after working at a a small private school for twenty plus years, was it difficult to transition to a public school? just because of the, the paperwork, the bureaucracy and, and everything that goes with that? I mean, some aspects of it were difficult, yes. My, the saddest thing for me was losing the, um, the t- top tier technology training and equipment that I had at that private school. <laughs> it was wonderful. I was someone who really was just loved technology and learning everything to present, you know, do, let's try this, let's try that. And I was always very open-minded about technology and the trainers at that school were wonderful. Moving into a public, you know, the public sector where there's just not the funding for those types of things all the time. So that was probably the biggest change that I had to envision, you know, and, and make, um, As for the kids, there were kids, you know, uh, wonderful. And I I really haven't looked back. 
I've really enjoyed my time at my new school. I love my new school. I love my students. And I've em really embraced teaching, opening up the field of classics for kids who would not normally have the opportunity to take it. So how do you think you have changed as a teacher over the years? If you look back at yourself teaching at Episcopal 94, 95, 96, compared to yourself now. <laughs> um, I'm still teaching about Caecilius. <laughs> so that has changed. Um, my, he's, he's still in the garden after all these years. I absolutely love the Cambridge Latin chorus. I know it has its issues um, that have been brought to light recently. And, you know, I agree with so much of that. But the, the thing that the Cambridge Latin course does so well that I haven't seen replicated yet, maybe with Cerberani, um, is the story. I mean, it's just amazing. It's, it's a great story. And the kids really do love the stories. Yes, good. Yeah. Oh, I love Cerberani. Um, and I, you know, I, who doesn't love a good story? No one. I mean, it, and so that has not changed through the years. I, I love that book and I love all of the opportunities to bring in other things. I also like the way it incorporates the culture and the civilization of the ancient people, um, with ease. So, but how have I changed? Gosh, I, I, I think I'm even more open-minded than I used to be. I've always been an open-minded person. I, I like change. Um, I know a lot of people find change scary and intimidating and it is, but I've always enjoyed that challenge to try new things and, Oh, let me see if I can, you know, do this. Can I use Google maps? Can I use Google earth? Can I use Jamboard? Um, I had the greatest time one year when, my tech trainer wanted us to try um, virtual reality. And so he introduced me to a virtual reality program where you could create stuff similar to Minecraft. And um, so we, we had a great time doing that stuff that year. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I still oh. love what I do, you know, and, and I've just found different ways to, to do that stuff. Well, I think it's great that you've maintained your enthusiasm for teaching and it's, it's, it's really obvious that you still have that. Okay, yes, so it's, it, it's time for us to move on to uh, sex carissimi race, six of your favorite things, your most beloved right. things as a Latin teacher. And <laughs> you've already kind of answered number one, I assume your favorite Latin textbook is Cambridge. Yeah, absolutely. It's one that I was introduced. It was not one that I learned with uh, when I was in school. I learned on, um, oh gosh, I don't remember the name of the textbook now. No one uses it anymore. But um, when I started teaching as a student teacher at LSU, we were using Cambridge and I had to adapt very quickly to this new style of presenting Latin to students. And I really found that I enjoyed it. Uh, it was something different. And I know people always complain like, you know, don't teach the way you were taught, you know? Um, and I totally read, um, be open-minded about how you introduce things to your students. Number two, what is your favorite place to visit in Italy? Oh, wow. Okay, so I'm gonna say for this one, Ostia. I love Ostia. 
you know, so many people want to go to Pompeii and, you know, absolutely do it. Everybody should go to Pompeii at least once in your life. But Ostia is often overlooked and it's so close to Rome. You can get on a bus and be there in, you know, 30 minutes. Um, and then along the way, you've got Isola Sacra, which was the, the necropolis for the city, which is just fantastic. I love cemeteries in general, um, but an ancient cemetery is like gold. Right. <laughs> Reading the inscriptions and just, you know, imagining what it was like to to come here on the birthday of the, the deceased and celebrate a, a cana with them. Okay. Number three, your favorite work of classical literature or your favorite classical author? Definitely Virgil. Um, I have never, ever, ever once gone back or read the Aeneid and not been blown away. Just, you see something new every time you read it. And it's just the level of detail and nuance is just unparalleled, in my opinion. Okay, number four, your favorite movie or TV program about the classical world? Wow, this is one... I'm going to have to say Nova did a, sh a, a series a while back. This was probably in the late nineties. I want to say called um, secrets of lost empires. And there's one on a Roman bath and there's one on the, um, the Wela, the roof of the Colosseum. And they use experimental archeology span to reproduce these things in the way that the ancient Romans would have. And I just find those, impossibly fascinating they're just amazing and i often draw on them just show my students what good experimental archaeology looks like yeah the roman bath one i remember towards the end of that they begin arguing about the water configurations and the proper temperature <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah and That's then the it one. begins leaking and they have to find a modern solution because yes time is running out right yeah have you seen the one um, the more recent one when they try when they they don't try to they do they build an elevator system for the coliseum yes. to raise the wolf to that. the very top of that i have seen that one yes yeah that's good one. That's wonderful good as well number five your favorite character in classical mythology so i'm gonna say hephaestus um hephaestus is the equivalent of an ancient maker right he was the one who made all of the weapons for the gods. He was the one who and yet could make, you know, jewelry for his wife also. So he was just really fascinating character that I think it often gets overlooked. Okay. And finally, number six, your favorite Latin expression. <laughs> I like, I do find myself saying Mirabola, Mirabola Dictu a lot, or, you know, Mirabola Wisu, Mirabola Auditu a lot. So I'm just going to go with that one. Um, I'm someone who constantly finds wonder um, in the Latin classroom. So yeah, I like to use those quite often. And you obviously pass a lot of that wonder along to your students. So um, you've done a lot of great work and you, you've done such a, an innovative job of, of bringing new students into the, the field of classical studies and you're really an inspiration, Natalie. Thank you so much. I am so glad that uh, we had the time to talk today. Yeah, I wish we had talked 30 years ago. Yes, me too. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll have to talk again before 30 more years passes. <laughs> I sure hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, hey, uh, congratulations on the award. Uh, 
and uh, good luck in good luck in DC with the Bidens. Thank you so much, Ryan. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Okay, bye.